This is the Winning in Winnipeg podcast, where we talk to top performing business owners, executives, entrepreneurs, and local Winnipeg celebrities. We get to learn who they are, how they think, and we get to hear their perspective about what's really going on in Winnipeg and their businesses. Today, I have the president of Versapile, Stan Higgins. Stan is an entrepreneur, helical screw pile nerd and consultant. He started Versapile Inc. in 2011 with a vision of transforming the local piling industry by raising the bar with a quality of product and customer service never before seen. Stan continues to be an outspoken voice for the further regulation of helical piles and hopes that they will be the standard foundation for new structures in the near future. Stan, being an Indigenous entrepreneur, has founded the first foundations program to equip and train indigenous peoples. He is involved with the entrepreneur organization, and he is also the founder of the Manitoba Construction Professionals Network. When he's not murdering people on the squash court or on the ice, he's networking and pushing to grow his company, himself, and his relationships. Stan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you having me. All right. So the intro. did it help? Did it help at all? That was, that was great. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> yeah. Good. See a little, yeah, a little pick me up. It was great. Um, you and I have never actually played squash. No. It may be because I'm a little bit afraid. I think that's fair well, considering you, what I've seen. If you've played uh, Jean-Eric on the court, then uh, you've played someone better than me, in my opinion. So I think that, uh, I think you'd fare Fare better against me than you would John Eric. Okay. Well, I am, uh, I'm ready. I'm ready. My ego is actually more ready than anything else, I would say. Um, and other than squash, you were saying hockey's a big one. Yeah. I love playing hockey. I haven't been playing nearly enough this year, but no. yeah, it's something I miss. Something I'll have to get back involved with. Is that once a week or what is that? Uh, well, I mean, at the, at the winter club, when I was there, yeah. it was like three or four times a week. Wow. Um, so had good, had great legs. That is a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. But lots of, I mean, it's, it's fun, right? So, yeah. uh, similar to squash, you get addicted to it. You want to go more and more. So, yeah. Yeah. Good legs, good lungs. That's right. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. Ah, good for both sports. So there's, there's a lot that we can talk about. I, I think that you're pretty dynamic in the way that you approach business and networking and relationships and Winnipeg in general. Um, and even your, your niche, um, market. Now I, where I really want to start though, is kind of just like your origin story, right? Like were you born in Winnipeg, uh, you know, schools, give me the, every, every comic book character has an origin story. What's yours? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't have like a particularly interesting one, but I was born in Calgary, lived a little bit in Regina, oh, yeah. Yeah. moved to moved to Ottawa, uh, or just outside of Ottawa in a little French community there. Um, then we ended up in Burlington, Ontario. So basically like a Toronto boy, uh, just like in the suburbs there. Okay. And uh, moved to Winnipeg when I was 14. So um, I think, you know, initially we thought we were going to Charleswood. So I, I was at, uh, West, oh, I can't remember one of the, one of the, uh, junior highs in Westwood or yeah, something. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. In Charleswood, we ended up moving to St. Patel. So okay. I landed at, um, at CGS, uh, another 
French high school there yep. and um, haven't really used French since. <laughs> Is your family French? Uh, no, not at all. I think they okay. just, my parents just thought that, you know, it'd be something that would serve me well in my future. And, yep. um, you know, uh, I didn't really use that to my advantage. So I, right. I squandered uh, all that, all that time invested in the language. Um, now I can, uh, you know, barely get by. You know, I could I could hardly order a Subway sandwich in Quebec without getting yelled at by the guy. Believe it or not, <laughs> my wife, who's went through the same uh, French that I did in high school, she speaks French to our daughter. Oh, really? Yeah. So and, she retained and, it. And then it got me speaking French mm. to our daughter and then to my son. And like, now we speak a lot of French at home. Wow. Okay. Well, I know. Weird. Well, my, my wife doesn't speak a, a word of French. Yeah. Um, my brother, oddly enough, landed in Ottawa. So okay. he was able to, to utilize French when he got working with the federal government again. And, mm -hmm. you know, he picked it up pretty quick again. Yeah. It didn't take him too long to get back into the swing of things. It does, especially when you have to use it a lot. Right. Like I, I went traveling and I've never appreciated it more than being in France. For sure. And just like I was interpreting for everyone. And even Italy, right? all this all the oh, like yeah. italian you can you right. can pick out a lot of stuff yeah so that helped a lot there i think trip to cuba was about the last time that i used it there was oh, yeah. a lot of people from quebec and cuba right yeah that makes so, sense yeah if you wanted to talk to chicks and you had to yeah be able to speak a little bit of french yeah yeah i get it i got by uh-huh <laughs> so high school and then yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought for some reason that I wanted to be a computer scientist. So I went into computer sciences at the University of Manitoba. Okay, yeah. And um, that it just, I ended up getting really sick. Um, I, it actually, oddly enough, I ended up with that hantavirus, okay. which is like deer mice disease. So I was in the hospital for months really? fighting that and they didn't really figure it out. They figured it out afterwards what it was. But yeah, okay. it was like a room by myself for a couple of months with like a internist that was like trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Crazy. Um, and then from there, like it just like, it, I don't know, I just sort of like fell out of uh, love with the idea of sitting in front of a computer all day. Mm -hmm. And, and to be honest, like the, the, the work just at university wasn't all that exciting doing like linear algebra and advanced calculus and all these things that I just couldn't compute in my brain why I'm learning this stuff or what yep. the applicable yep. value was. So um, I just, I, I quit and I decided I was going to go to Alberta and work on the rigs and make some money. So mm -hmm. I, I headed down like in the, like around this time of the year yeah. and, uh, and no one like the thaw seasons actually like when they shut down. Yeah. Right. So they legitimately moved. the worst time to go yeah. Out there. Yeah. So I ended up with CN rail Okay. And, uh, and that was cool. I got to go to like Valemont and work in Jasper area. It was like beautiful yeah. area, but, um, that was also like, I guess my first taste of union workplace. Uh, uh so, mm -hmm. you know, like it was, you know, you'd be swinging a hammer and, uh, knocking these butterfly clips out of the rails and, uh, you'd have someone come up and tell you like, you need to slow down. Like you're going to hurt yourself. And you, you know, you think, oh, he's just, taking care of me right um you go but you felt good so you're like no no i'm good like i feel fine and he's like no you're gonna hurt yourself and you, you're like no, no no like i'm actually good like this is a great pace for me yeah. and they're like slow down or you're gonna get hurt and you're like 
oh, okay, I get what's going on now. now I, I understand get it, right? what you're like, trying okay. to say. And, you yeah. know, a couple people would pull me aside and say, like, dude, like, you're, you're, you're not a fit bad. for this work environment. You need yeah. to get the hell out of here before right. this, like, uh, work environment eats you alive and, and turns you into one of us zombies. Uh-huh. Um, so I ended up back in Winnipeg uh, after, you know, sort of my summer abroad. And, uh, and I ended up, my, my mom, uh, knew somebody at the, at the Mama Wichita Center in, in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. She was fairly involved with the uh, local indigenous community. And, uh, she, she heard of a position for an admin assistant at, uh, at a, at a, a group home for, for girls that would come in pregnant, have their babies, and then live in an apartment while learning sort of parenting skills. Okay. And then they'd graduate the program and and they would be able to leave with their baby and like with the furniture and like kind of start their life with, you know, some good right. parenting skills and sort of things like that. Yeah. So I ended up doing that, which was, you know, just the weirdest thing ever. Totally um, different. Totally than different. anything yeah. you've probably ever done. <laughs> but in doing that, I, I found out that there was these youth programs that they had going on and it, it just seemed really cool. And, and the person that was running them uh, was a really dynamic person who I just like wanted to hang out with more and, and learn more and, and just sort of have that, you know, mentor me in a way. So I started volunteering at the, at the youth programs okay. um, and, and by volunteering there and adding value for nothing, it turned into them trying to figure out a way to get me over to that department from where I was. Uh, that transitioned uh, about, you know, a year later. Uh, we were doing all kinds of great things. And unfortunately, that person who was my mentor was sort of, uh, I guess, like wrongfully accused of doing something that was not uh, ethical. Yeah. Um, so they ended up having to leave and I took over the program. So like I was, you know, in my early 20s, at a staff of like 60 people. We had hundreds of kids coming through our programs every month. It was wild. Like it was crazy. And it was a ton of fun. Like we ended up, you know, we won like the governor general's award for safer communities. We were bringing in lots of uh, new, exciting programs, mm -hmm. um, making a real cool difference. Um, but with all that sort of success, it started to, you know, uh, water down, I guess, the the team in a sense like there so it was like oh you know like i got a nephew <laughs> they're gonna work there and 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 soon enough it just got to a point where my leadership skills uh were which was just basically lead by example mm -hmm. um wasn't enough to actually make this thing work and i lost i was losing my drive because i felt like you know maybe a victim of um uh, what, what nepotism, I guess. Right. Mm. And, um, at the same time, my mom was growing her business to a point where she needed help. She started a business in 99, uh, doing executive search, specializing in indigenous oh, nice. search. Okay. So I left and joined her and went to sort of the, from the grassroots to sort of the, the boardroom, um, and got to work at the national level, like coast to coast to coast with various indigenous uh, organizations and communities mm -hmm. uh, at an executive level, um, but as well with like the IBMs and like Royal Banks and Rio Tintos and all these big companies that were sort of hiring, you know, indigenous people at an executive level as well. Yep. What was that business called? Uh, at the time it was Higgins Executive Search. Okay. So uh, became a partner in that. 
uh, helped to grow the business with my mom. My brother joined us and uh, just, it was really, really interesting, but I'm not a, I'm not a technician, I guess. So Mm -hmm. eventually being a consultant and, you know, trying to be billable and these different things that didn't really work for me. So I was always constantly trying to do things that would grow the company or that be implementing systems so that we can bring on employees to do the things that I didn't want to do or, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was seen as not terribly valuable because it's not billable. Um, and I, I think my ego at the time, uh, required that I go and prove that I could do something on my own. So, um, I had this, uh, entrepreneurial itch from when I was a kid, uh, and, and I needed to scratch it. So, uh, that's when I transitioned into helical piles somehow. Okay. Yeah. What brought on the idea of helical piles? Like, where did it come from? Such an accident. I honestly, I was, I was thinking about that the other day and I thought, there's no way if I was like somebody with experience in construction living in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. that I would ever have thought that that was a good idea. Like, I, I would have had a book of reasons why that's a terrible idea. Okay. And I think that was the, that's like, in a sense, why I had the opportunity to get into it. Cause like no one in their right mind with experience in construction in Winnipeg would have ever done it. Um, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And, uh, I was, I think the number one reason why I got into it was that I needed to get into something and I'd looked at enough businesses that I was going to pull the trigger. I had to pull the trigger on something. Cause I had like written all these business plans for different businesses. And then for whatever reason, decided like, yeah, okay, for this reason, I, I need to get out of this opportunity before I get any deeper. Yep. Um, with the helical pile thing, I think what I liked about it was that I felt like I could sort of e-myth it in a way and like put some systems around it. I was like, it's just a big screwdriver and a screw, right? Like yep. not a construction guy, but that's what it looked like to me. It's pretty much it. Um, and then, uh, and then the other thing that happened was that I was, I was actually, my now wife was my, uh, I guess, girlfriend at the time. I don't think we were yet engaged or maybe we were close. Um, but she's a RCMP officer and she was in Puckettawagan yeah. uh, where she was posted. I would go up and visit her. And I've been to so many First Nation communities already like across Canada, but being in Puck, like when you go there at the time, at least there was like about a third of the houses didn't have front doors. And this was something that I'd seen in First Nations across Canada, you know, um, basically all over Canada, you'd see this, but the more Northern, uh, the more cold that it would be, it seemed like the more often you'd see them without front doors, which was like contrary to logic, right? It's like, well, like the colder it gets, the more necessary a front door is, right? So like, it never really occurred to me why this was the case, right? Like, did they kick them out? Was it like indigenous feng shui? Was it like, you know, it just, it didn't make sense. Do, do they love the cold so much when they're like a climb, like climated to the, to the North or like, I don't, I didn't understand it, but we don't believe in front doors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an open door policy. Yeah, in this that's community, right. Yeah. right? Uh, we're very welcoming. Um, but you know, obviously that's just me being naive and not understanding what's going on. So I'm, I'm up in puck and, there's not a ton to do other than to like work, which I could do virtually. So I'd, you know, I'd work my day and then I was kind of spending my evenings. Well, like Sandy would work 14 hour days, so I'd hardly ever see her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be researching different business opportunities and one came up for helical piles 
And I thought, well, what is this? It's intriguing. So I started reading on the internet about it and I found out, you know, in the 1980s, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers put it in their foundations for expansive clay soils. I'm like, what kind of soil does Winnipeg have? Oh, expansive clay soils. Oh, well, that's huh. that's interesting. Okay, yeah. so that lines up. And then I'm like, okay, what is the great thing about helical piles? Well, they go, you know, below soil that's considered to be in the active zone. So like soil that's so shallow that it could be affected by the sun and which changes moisture or rain or whatnot. And that also could be affected by frost and different things like that. So these are like, like expansive clay soils can move, they can contract, they can expand based on moisture, based on uh, frost, these sorts of things. So um, I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. Like that blade anchors down there and, you know, the shaft is pretty slick and whatever's happening above the blade doesn't really impact the pile and whatever's built on top of it doesn't move. So I'm like, okay, it makes sense. Now I'm like looking out the window and I'm going, oh, okay, now I understand what's happening here because these folks have shallow foundations built on these footings that you could see and they're moving all over the place. The door jams and the door's got to come off the hinges. And because they're living in an area where there's such crazy expansive soils and it's so like remote and northern, like they're being impacted by frost more so than probably, you know, people are south um, in terms uh, who might be built on a similar foundation, right? Okay. Their expand their active zone is that much more, and and you know, no one's gonna go under there and level the house when it's minus forty. So I thought, you know, all the and and then what got to me was sort of like all these issues that uh, come out of that, meaning like you take a front door off. <laughs> And you hang a bunch of curtains and stuff. You crank the thermostat. Like, so Sandy would say, like, she would walk into a house and it would be like, you'd be hit with all this heat because mm -hmm. it'd just be cranked, right? Well, that collision that happens creates moisture, which manifests into mold, which manifests into, you know, all sorts of things. And these houses, which are no longer level, if they get to an extreme point, like, you know, the structure starts to come apart as well, right? So you know that because you're in construction. So what you don't want is a house that moves all over the place. Eventually that manifests into all kinds of issues. We see those issues in the news when we, and if you Google like First Nations Housing Canada, yep. it's shameful uh, what shows up on Google images. Mm -hmm. Like you just look at the first like six or eight images and it's atrocious. Uh, you might see one or two reasonable houses. Those will always be government uh, websites. So those are pictures from government websites, but everything else that you'd see posted is generally something that we should all be ashamed of. Uh, so this I thought was an opportunity to do something that was meaningful. And a lot of the conversations I would have with communities, uh, often that were looking for executive people for economic development, corporations and things like that, is that they wanted to be more involved in the opportunities in the community. So they felt like they were often this flow through of money. So a housing pro opportunity would come in, they'd be building like six houses for the community. People would come from outside the community, do all the work, and they would leave with the money. None of it stayed locally. None of it created jobs, right? Like, so they wanted to be more involved meaningfully in the opportunities. I thought that Hioko Piles might be a way for, for them to do that. And that if I could create a system for my business, I could pass that on to them. They could, you know, have people that get involved um, with doing housing projects and different things. Uh, when I came back to Winnipeg, I started doing local research. I found out that there's really not a ton of people doing uh, helical piles. There were some ground screw people that like 
turn them in by hand. Mm-hmm. There's never really for decks and yeah, the small ones. Yeah. And that's kind of where we still started, but we <clears throat> we still took it to another level. Meaning, like you had a eight foot frost line in Winnipeg, like based on my research, like in a in a bad situation. So I just thought, like, how would I, how how could I compete differently? Well have a pile that actually puts the helix below eight feet, mm-hmm. right? Whereas these other ones were like, the big ones were eight feet, but yep. they're like a double wrapped helix. It's like two feet in, in catch the frost. So still in the frost line, yep. like the important part of the piles in the frost line. So I thought, okay, well I can at least do a pile that like totally makes sense. And then the cool thing about the system that I decided to take on, um, we would monitor torque and torque there's this empirical relationship between torque and capacity. So we could take it even a step further in terms of the quality and we could, we could verify the torque while we do the installation, which means that every pile we put in the ground would satisfy the design uh, loads, right? So we know that if you need, you know, 4,000 pounds for your deck, we're able to confirm that using torque. And that would be another way that we would improve the reliability of, of piles in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly most people were doing concrete piles. So when I started calling around for piles, it was all pretty much concrete and concrete for like a deck just didn't make a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. And when I was making calls to, to people that offered piles as part of my research, um, the level of service was atrocious. Like, so like, I think I call like 13, like piling contractors. I got two of them on the phone. The one gave me a really high price. Um, they were pretty professional. Um, years later, I found out that they, they hire like crackheads and pay them, uh, like money at the end of the day so they can get their fix. And then they show up the next day, like ready to work again. Like huh. I won't name who they so are you're saying but... <laughs> they show up two days in a row. <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They give yeah. them just yeah. enough to, to right. get through the yeah. night. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. and get them back the next day. Um, is much better than just paying them on a Friday because then you lose them for multiple days, right? <laughs> if they ever come back at all. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and then the other person uh, that answered the phone, like I remember uh, vividly thinking that uh, they were upset with me because I <laughs> must have got them out of bed at like 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, well, this is a really big opportunity because the bar is so low. The bar that I had with uh, in executive search was a very high bar. Right. So like one of the last searches that I did before I started Helical Piles, I placed I helped place Marie Sinclair, uh, Wilton Littlechild and Marie Wilson at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So we had, you know, uh, very senior. That was kind of the, the bar that I was used to trying to raise to in terms of like customer service and professionalism. Yep. So I thought, let's bring that to piling, which is like a really kind of ugly industry. And if I just do that, this thing should be successful. So. That was a really long answer, but that's sort of where my venture into helical piles uh, started and how it started. And, and really it's because I was super naive mm-hmm. and didn't know what I was really getting into, but I yep. saw these opportunities. So you said that <clears throat> you started looking for businesses to kind of either buy, to jump into, to create. Why was that a thing? Like what, where did that come from as far as even that thought of I'm going to buy a business. I want to, I want to be the boss or I want to create something. Where did that come from? I'd say probably like, uh, I feel like I was born with it in a way. Okay. So 
<laughs> it's embarrassing, but uh, being that I was born in Calgary and my grandpa owned a ranch, I was convinced that I was a cowboy. Nice. And uh, we moved to Ambrun, Ontario, which is a very French little community outside of Ottawa. Okay. And I would have been in kindergarten and I would like come home and I'd tell my mom, like, we need to make eight hot dogs and, you know, like get some drinks ready and stuff like that. Cause people were coming over because I'd gone door to door selling cowboy lessons, but using like hot dogs and a drink as like the catch too. Right. So you sweeten the deal with the hot dog and the drink. Gets them every time. Yeah. And my dad would go to all these like. That's called a value shows. stack. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like you it. You know what? My kid did the exact same thing at the trade show this weekend. We were at the Cottage Country Show. Yeah. And uh, and I said to him, like, you get 1% of any sale you bring in, right? Yeah. So the first thing he did was write, like, you know, buy a house for me today and get good luck. And then he wrote the next sign said. Uh, if you buy a house from me today, I'll buy anything from any of the booths here up to a hundred dollars. Huh. Right. So uh -huh. if you bought, if you, if, and, and he tried to close the sales right there. Like he actually, tr like he went for the close on houses I like while it. we were there. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, this is the seven year old or the nine year old? He's nine. Yeah. That's the okay. nine year old. He's. So it's not too long before we can put him to work. There you go. I know. I, like I know. It. I'm looking forward to it. Like he's going to. He's going to run our sales like through the roof. It's yeah. Be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, so I, you know, I was doing stupid things like selling cowboy lessons, uh, you know, when I was like six years old, but. You're the first person ever to be on here to sell cowboy <laughs> lessons. I sold everything. I'm not actually sure what that entails, <laughs> but I imagine it's amazing. I, I don't know what it entails either, <laughs> uh, but my dad would, I remember he'd go over to trade shows and then I'd sell his trinkets afterwards, right? Okay, so he'd yeah. show up with like yeah. keychains and pens and funky little, you know, the knickknacks that you can pick up at a trade show, yeah. like stress balls and stuff. Yeah. I'd go door to door selling those. So good. So my dad would come back and he'd be like, hey, I'm giving you these, but you're not allowed to go and sell them, right? Like they used to like try and beat it out of me. <laughs> don't sell everything we own. <laughs> yeah. Where's the cushions? Uh, yeah. Come on. If the oranges were going bad, yeah. I'd like go put them for sale <laughs> to the neighbors. Like they're good for a day. Like they're going to be cheap. 30% right? off. Yeah. So, uh, and then, and then as an adult, like it's just, I think, uh, in the position that I was in, um, I just had this, you know, I was doing a little bit of reading and things like books like E-Myth and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and these different things that would motivate me to try and, you know, create assets. Right. So I, was buying duplexes and things like that at the mm -hmm. time. And I just saw business as something that I really wanted to, to do. And I wanted to do something that was my own too. Mm -hmm. I just had this need to build. And, um, I think that's, that's really it. Like it just was this, this scratch, this, like this itch that had to be scratched. Yeah. Just wouldn't go away. No. Yeah. They say that the universe knocks on your door until you listen. Louder and louder and louder. I, I, yeah. mine was very similar as far as my, my Baba used to make us Ukrainian Easter eggs. Okay. And she'd give it to us by the dozen and she'd be like, go sell them. <laughs> like, I'm not giving you any money, but here's the Ukrainian Easter eggs and go sell them. That's door awesome. To, door to door, Ukrainian Easter eggs. Do you want to buy one? Well, that door-to-door -door sales, like, it's such a common thing when you, like, when you're an avid reader like you are and I am, you, 
you you figure out that the origin of a lot of people that have become successful well i guess to be successful means you have to be able to make sales mm-hmm. right like you don't have to necessarily be the best at whatever you do but you if you're the best at selling what you do then that's what sort of elevates you to higher levels of success yep. and that door-to-door thing is something that so many of those people have in common mm-hmm. when i was um i forget how many years ago it was but I knew that I needed to hear no more because it still bothered me. I took a job doing uh, phone, telephone subprime auto sales. <laughs> if you want to get some no's in like reps at people screaming at you, that's a good industry to get into. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I actually left out my dad owned uh srnj uh off of academy here not too far from where you're at oh right really now. um it was a call center yeah and uh, there was a reason why we moved to uh, uh to winnipeg from ontario was that he came here to actually run call centers for at&t okay. so uh and then when at&t sort of packed up and left he started his own call center here Amazing. so i did have a period of time where i worked at the call center yeah yeah and uh and for me, it was like selling insurance on electrical, like fires for a utility company that was in uh, California. It was like the, it was like, you know, do you want insurance in case your, uh, your electrical catches fire? And they're like, my electrical is going to catch fire. And you're like, statistically, it's like one in a million, but we're selling this insurance, it which could is only happen. $50 a month. And, yeah. you know, you, you'd you be protected if if your house were to catch fire as a result of this one specific way that it could catch fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was tough. And then we had those like the subprime like visas and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, you'd be trying like all these hilarious tactics in order to get people to take these visas like remember it was like people in phoenix or something and you're like you know like that couple times a year when you get frost on your windshield and they're like yeah you're like just like take the visa don't activate it stick it in a drawer <laughs> and when that day shows up then you know you can use it to get the frost off your windshield and then they would laugh and they would say okay all right send me the stupid visa yeah right and then probably it sat there for a month or two before they activated it i don't know so good yeah <laughs> but it really gets you in a different mindset right like oh yeah you had to make it a game and you had to somehow have some degree of fun with it mm-hmm. i felt like if you if you just stuck to the script then it was like it was brutal yeah um but if you had some fun and added some character like some personality to it yeah um and got the person sort of laughing or you know, that, that helped a lot. Yeah. I, for some reason found myself getting into medical issues on the phone with people. I don't know why, but they would tell okay. me something and I was a firefighter for 11 years. And oh. so they would say, you know, Oh, you know what? I've been feeling this lately, just randomly. I'm like, Oh, have you checked this and this and this? Like, oh, you know, I was a paramedic too. And, wow. and, and then sometimes I'd get sucked into it and half an hour later. Like, Okay, well, it was nice talking to you. I'm just like, ah, I did it again. <laughs> Damn, I made a new friend, but didn't make a sale. Were you on commission or hourly? Oh, straight up commission. <laughs> straight up commission oh, see, too. That's, that's harsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had your parents. Your parents, it sounds like both started a or multiple 
companies. Yeah. I mean, both, both of them did it by accident mm-hmm. though. Like, I mean, for my dad, it was like, you know, AT&T wasn't going to stick around, uh, in the call center industry in general. Uh, so it was like, well, what, am, you know, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I guess, he, I mean, he was certainly employable. Um, and he could have taken an executive role kind of anywhere he wanted to go. Uh, but he, uh, he, he did roll the dice and start his own business, uh, when he was left in that circumstance. And, and that was, uh, really cool. Cause he, like, I think they, they, they were fairly successful call center. I think he had hundreds of employees, so yep. it went really well. Um, and then for my mom, she was actually working at the ab center, uh, in downtown Winnipeg. And she was working with, uh, I think it was called CARD or like Center Aboriginal Human Resource Development or something. Okay. And so she she didn't know really what to do when we came to to Winnipeg. And that's where she landed. And she was really inspired by a lot of the people that she was meeting. And when uh, someone came and knocked on her door and said, I heard you have, an, have a background in recruitment. We'd like you to join us because we're looking for a recruiter. Uh, my mom said, well, I'd love to. Uh, but I think there's this really interesting opportunity to do like search, but with uh, Aboriginal people. And and she said, well, that's cool. Like whatever you want to, if you want to build, build some extra business in and, you know, as long as you're billable, like, you know, bring in as much business as you like. Yep. Um, so it didn't take very long before my mom's a phenomenal salesperson. Like we had the pink Cadillac and stuff for Mary Kay. Like she was like a d- district, like Amazing. manager type person. Amazing. Like she's phenomenal yeah. at sales. So she's bringing in business. And, uh, and this is in like 1999 and a good number of clients are now Aboriginal and, and candidates and stuff. And she gets pulled into her boss's office and she goes, Brenda, we're a professional search firm. And my mom goes, I understand that. And she's like, well, we can't have Indians dressed like that sitting in the front lobby. Oh, so she, she never intended to ever start her own business. Mm-hmm. And she's like the perfect example of like a really good technician. Um, but she, she, you know, on, on morals had to, you know, sort of start in her in our house the next day essentially yeah so the next day she started higgins executive search right and she really did grow that to something amazing huh yeah so did was there ever any was there ever a time that that was for you where it was kind of like an aha moment or was it more like a like a building kind of tidal wave of just you reading more and more about it and when, when was the time yeah. that you decided like you were going to actually make this a thing? I mean, I don't think I was really terribly inspired by my parents much okay. um, to pursue entrepreneurship. Okay. I had my own idea of what that should look like. And I think, I think a, my ego had a big part of it. I ha- like, I think a big part of why I did start a business was to just prove that I could do it and that I could be successful, yep. whether it be to myself or like the outside world, I don't know. Yep. Um, now that I've, you know, done it, I've, it's, it's like, I, I feel like it's helped put my ego in check and actually instilled a lot more humility. That beats you um, down. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Any, anyone who's started a business or done anything knows how much it, absolutely crushes you at times yeah 
Absolutely. I wasn't prepared for like all the challenges that would have to be overcome through right. like owning a business. Like it's, I, I definitely like you read the books and you think like, this is the way to go. Or you see, you know, a guy like Gary Vaynerchuk and you, you know, you get motivated to, to jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's not for everyone. That's for sure. Yeah. And Absolutely. a million times that I thought I was insane and what am I doing? And I need to pack this up and become an employee somewhere else or, you know, like, uh, that's, that crossed my mind so many times. Yeah. My wife says, you just don't like people telling you what to do. That could be it. Like I, your, your wife probably hit it on the head there. Pretty I, much. I actually think yeah. she did. Like yeah. as simple as that is, that holds a lot of weight for, for me at least. And then there's also the freedom of being able to have an idea and pursue it without permission. Right. That was a big part of it, I think as well, is mm-hmm. just being able to like exercise your own ideas with independence. Mm-hmm. and not having to answer to anybody or to seek that permission to to do things. Yep. Yeah. Working for the fire department, I mean, it's been around for over 100 years, right? And so they, I think I remember asking once, why do we squeegee and clean the trucks and the floors at this specific time during the day? Like, why do we do it? And you know, there's a few people that were like, ah, we've always done it this way, you know, all this stuff. And one guy said, you know why it actually is, is because back when we had horses on the department, that's when the guys would come out and clean their shit out of the stable. (laughs) And it just always stuck. I was like, that is very one ridiculous but two i started looking at everything that way of like why do we do it this way why do we do it this way and then you start bringing like well maybe we do it this way and you just get beaten down like know your role yeah never gonna change this shut up you know this whole thing and so i guess it's the analogy of the big boat versus small boat right when you're leading a company uh especially a small business if something's not working, you just change that shit right away. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it, I ended up changing my title because as an entrepreneur, you can give you're, yourself whatever title. So like if to. you get an email from me, it's my title's disruptor of the status quo. Interesting. And, like uh, and that's really like what is kind of drives me in a way. Yeah. Uh, so I see things that shouldn't be the way they are. Like, let's say like atrocious service in, in, a, in an industry like piling. Mm-hmm. Um, or like right now I've started another company, um, that is around, uh, affordable energy efficient homes. Okay. So we build homes entirely out of trusses. So what I saw that wasn't working was that, uh, as I've now gotten way more involved in indigenous housing and uh, like we're improving things by putting foundations under houses so that they're not moving and having all these issues, but there's so many more issues. Mm-hmm. And everyone just keeps repeating the same thinking to solve the problem. It's just repeated over and over again, thinking that it's going to be a new result. Like it literally is insanity with how they're trying to address the housing issue. Mm -hmm. And with First Nations, it's all cheapest at all cost. Yep. So 
like my inspiration for doing this trust home thing was to create a home that we could get it done cheap enough, but still tackle all of the really important things such as energy efficiency, uh, durability, resistance to mold, fire protection, because First Nations people are 10 times more likely to die in a house fire. Okay. Super tragic. Yeah. Um, and unnecessary. So like, you know, it's like, it's maybe $700 for you to prime a family home with intumescent fire retardant paint. And then there's automatic fire suppression systems that install into the ceiling. They're mm -hmm. like under 300 bucks a piece, like different things that you could do where like you're a fire, you're a firefighter for 11 years. Um, if there's a fire in Winnipeg, there's pretty good resources here to help fight that fire. But if yep. there's a fire like in some of these northern remote communities, like there's nobody there to fight the fire or those that are there to fight the fire are dealing with such limited resources and tools yep. compared to what we would have here. Yep. So the, the rate of people dying in these fires is like alarming and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's kids, right? So it's like, what can we do better? What can we do different? So, and the other reason that we like, I, I was attracted to truss houses is that it's such a simplified building process. Like if all you had to do was stand trusses to build a house, like it'd be a lot easier, right? Like the mm -hmm. roof goes on pretty damn quick. Yep. Like it goes on, you sheet it, you, it's done, right? Yep. So it accelerates the build process, but by having a truss encompass like sort of the roof, the floor, and then also the walls, you end up with this like double wall uh, system and then truss floor, truss ceiling and 360 degrees of continuous insulation without thermal bridging. Okay. So really good for like, it's not a, it's not an Emmett Leo product by any means. Cause it's super um, restricted in terms of like what you can do with it. Like it's not for the pe people that love these architecturally interesting and uh, an amazing home. It's, it's really good for just really affordable, practical living. Right. Um, awesome for like, cottage if you want like an affordable cottage especially if you're in northwest ontario and you've got mm -hmm. these hydro rates that are atrocious yeah but our product is actually we've just been doing blower door tests and different things like that we're we're like net zero out of the box like our standard product is net zero and when you walk around with the smoke pen we're like at passive levels in terms of like what you're dealing with with leakage and stuff so, so, so 0.6 ach yeah like very very high levels of efficiency. It's got to be tight, yeah. Yeah, super tight. So what it does, it does very well. Yeah. Like limited by design, but yeah. but what you're focusing it, on is... And what took us the longest was actually getting it to be so simple yet to check these boxes, right? right. So it is a very simple building system. Um, and, it, and we also have, uh, to make it even easier, we've got plywood walls. Okay. Right. Which are sealed and battened. So you're, you're doing away with poly vapor barrier and things like, like, so the plywood actually acts as the vapor barrier. We should have done away with poly a long time <laughs> ago. Yeah. There's so many now like really cool membrane systems and stuff that you can choose from. Yep. Um, but again, like plywood's not the most attractive wall to have. Like it's good one side plywood, but mm -hmm. it's quite textured compared to a drywall, which we seem to like here. Yep. But you know, drywall add water equals mold. So if you're in a First Nation community or remote community, you know, it's like something you might want to avoid. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to avoid that. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just like, that's what drives me is just 
seeing so many things that aren't being done right. And then the involvement, like back to sitting around that table of all these ECDEV corporations looking to get more involved in the opportunities which exist in their community, low-hanging fruits housing. It's that in, those infrastructure projects, uh, no matter uh, where you're located, that is an opportunity that exists in the First Nation community. Not all communities have access to great resources in their territory, such as, you know, uh, forestry or mining or oil and gas or, you know, things like that. Yep. But housing is is one that's always there. Yep. So if they can get involved in housing. To me, that's the low hanging fruit. And this trust building system is really simplified. They can build faster, but then not so fast, like with like a SIP panel where it goes together almost too quickly and there's no real economic opportunity. It's all been spent in a factory to make slick panels. Okay. Um, this is still like traditional strict stick framing, but you don't need like super experienced framers to ensure that the structural integrity of the, the building will, won't be compromised because someone only has basic level of experience with construction. Yep. Um, standing these every two feet and doing your strapping and your boarding is actually quite simple. Right. It's an easy barrier to entry. Yeah. For, absolutely. for the labor. Yeah. And Beautiful. supply chain wise, it's like any truss factory can build these trusses. Hmm. And then all the other components that we've put into the mix uh, have, are they're all readily available. Nothing's like, I mean, the craziest one thing that we have in there is rock wool. Right. For a while, that was a harder one to get, but right. it's super available. Yep. So this company has been around for now. How long? Uh, well, we've been in like pre-launch mode, I guess, for about a year and a bit. Okay. We've been working with energy modelers and building scientists. We're actually working with a, a guy named Trevor Trainer. He was with an organization called uh, RDH. And now he's spun off his own company and he's he's independent. Uh, his company's Bawadding. Uh, he's a First Nations guy. Uh, award-winning energy modeler who's done some really cool stuff up north okay. uh, with like net zero homes and stuff. So we've worked with him very closely. We're working with the BTAC program at Red River College, their building envelope department. Beautiful. Uh, so like the cottage that we build as a proof of concept for bedroom will actually be a, a cottage that my company owns and we'll rent it out and, you know, uh, have some fun with that. Yeah. Um, that one's got sensors all throughout it so that we can conduct multi-year studies on, you know, where we're hitting our dew points and what's the moisture, what's the temperature yep. throughout the envelope, these sorts of things. And then we also are, are studying the, uh, I talked to you probably a few weeks ago, um, but months uh, too late about geothermal in piles. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this cottage will actually be heated and cooled because it's so efficient. Only six piles have to be geothermal piles. So we're running geothermal through six of the piles and that'll cover the entire uh, heating and cooling load that this cottage has. Uh, it's about a 1,560 square foot cottage. So within those piles, they are, so the case on itself is the, is your piping or do you put piping yeah. inside of your? That's one way, the, using the pile itself as the case is one strategy. Um, but that's got more of an industrial application because if you're going to create the pile like a pressurized pressurized sealed vessel, mm -hmm. um, you've got to weld all your connections, get it like super tight. You fill the whole thing with liquid. Yeah. That requires a big pump system in order to move that much liquid, right? So that you're creating currents inside of the piles. It's just like, it's really... I guess that's a volume game, right? Yeah. You, you, 
if you if you need the volume you would have to that's right look more at something yeah. like that super okay. cool what you can do with that though because if you got this if you have like um if you turn off like let's say a valve and you just have this current running inside the piles they like kind of like charge up like a battery too so in an industrial application if you have like all these piles that are geothermal piles and they're filled up with liquid pressurized sealed vessels you could turn on like let's say a bank of 20 piles bring it down to a certain temperature and then draw from the next bank that has like the highest temperature until it gets to a certain level and then draw from the next one so that you've always got these sort of like banks of piles that are charging mm -hmm. so that when you hit these peak moments like at night or when it's like you know minus 45 and with wind chill we're hitting minus 50 or something then everything can open up and you can you can hit these uh you can tackle these peak periods uh no problem with by opening up all the piles okay um but that's a very sophisticated system that's yep. something that you know hopefully we'll be we'll be talking to people about um maybe with like hospitals or schools or you know these big big buildings that yep. um they can handle that kind of a budget for yep. for mechanical uh for the for the housing it's much more simple it's uh basically uh youtubes so you're just taking um the same youtubes that they would send down uh drill like drill drill drilled holes that they've done for geothermal purposes yep and then what you would do is you just fill the interior of the pile with a thermal grout that you don't need the grout structurally you just need it to help conduct okay so you would have the it would be completely filled and then you'd have a smaller pump that's just pumping liquid through like let's say a three-quarter inch youtube line right so yep. um there's way less way less being pumped through you don't need as sophisticated of a system in our situation uh like you could definitely do in-floor heat or something like that or in-floor cooling yep uh, we we decided to go with a hydron air furnace for this cottage so it converts water to air so it's going through sort of like a tradi traditional ducting system uh, that allows us to run, you know, we already have ducting for the HRV and stuff. So for us, that was kind of the most efficient way to do it. That's crazy. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. That kind of innovation is something that, you know, we don't, it's not that we don't often see it in construction. We see a lot of new stuff coming out, but the uh, people's willingness to try it and use it um, is at an all time low for sure. Yeah. No one wants to be the Guinea pig. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of being the first one to, to put my hand up and, and say that I'll do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, we actually just were awarded, uh, well, geo optimize was awarded. So we're working with a, a guy who's a very experienced, very smart geothermal guy. He's somebody who's taught the geothermal experts across Canada about, geothermal like he's sort of one of those pioneers in geothermal mm -hmm. happens to be from winnipeg his name's ed lorenz mm. so he's he's um he's really gotten excited about this because uh what it does is it takes like a, a traditional geo system might cost you from you know 12 dollars to 28 dollars a foot and by putting youtubes and grout into existing piles that like you already need for the project uh, we're able to get that cost down to maybe like five or six or seven dollars a foot. So, which is huge. Yeah, it's massive savings. Yep. And then if you're like, you know, obviously you you understand infill as well here in Winnipeg. 
But if you were to do, let's say, an infill project, very rarely are you going to have the yard space to do a geothermal bed, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be vertical bores or even horizontal. And then let's say one day you want a pool, right? Like you, that's, you know, it's $40,000 to divert your geothermal lines plus the cost of a pool. Yep. Like it's just, it's so difficult. But if we do the piles for the house and they're underneath the house, they're not it's fully encompassed. Yeah. They're yeah. not tying up any of that precious yard space. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a couple of ways that it adds value. Um, so Ed ended up uh, writing a proposal is actually for a, a warehouse. We've piled two warehouses already, and there's this third warehouse to still pile. And we the the end customer is the Métis Federation, and so we brought it up to the Métis Federation. Would you guys be interested in participating on this? I think it's a really good opportunity. We might be able to get some grant money to help support this because it's so innovative. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are also working with a really capable uh, geo firm. Um, which that helped instill a bit of confidence, but when, and and there is a little bit of an investment there for the Métis. So there's some risk there as well, because it's also like, you know, they're being a pioneer in this. Uh, but once they saw what that does to the carbon footprint, then they got like, they didn't like none of the other stuff really mattered that much. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we're still at the phase where we have to design something and, and, and make sure that they're really confident that this is going to work for them uh because the last thing they need is for this to go wrong for their investment mm-hmm. um but yeah they're they're really excited about this uh like how much how much it lowered the carbon footprint was really motivating to them right yeah and i think uh beyond the monetary savings which they will achieve as well um it's got sort of like this additional bottom line that's being satisfied how many years did it would, would you consider the payback in your model? Uh, you know what? I, I'm trying to remember where that landed, but I think it was within a 15 year period that they were getting all of the investment back. Okay, yeah. And that wasn't really taking into account the discounts that they'll also receive through this grant program. Right. Yeah. For me to do it in my house was like not the greatest return. It was something like 17 years return. Okay. Um, but you got to also keep in mind that I've built such an insanely efficient home that it's hard to get a return on it right. uh, when you're dealing with Manitoba hydro rates. If I was in Ontario in Kenora yep. and I was dealing with hydro one, you know, I'd get that back way quicker. Um, and you know, so it kind of depends on where you're at. Um, and then, uh, like I even looked at solar from my cottage. I don't need a lot of solar to get to net zero. Uh, but the payback on the solar was like way worse. Like yeah. the solar, it's like the solar panels on pr- even further. Yeah. I'm trying to recycle these solar panels before they paid for themselves. Right. Right. So like that investment was really like, I, I went and got a few estimates on it and I couldn't justify it. Mm-hmm. Um, not here in Manitoba anyways. Well, when you can heat your house with a candle, the price <laughs> yeah, of candles yeah, yeah. is a little yeah. less than a, than a solar system or a, uh, geothermal you got it yeah yeah so what would you say so you've got these two companies um operating one's kind of you know innovating and well both are actually innovating but what what was the hardest part about starting versapile and what has been the hardest part about the trust homes 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, hardest part about starting Versapile? I don't, that's a that's a tough one to answer. Um, I didn't really see it as all that hard. I just like I think it was just something I needed to do. Uh, I and and for me, it's like it's almost like playing a sport in a way, like owning a business. You might relate to this, but like every day, it's like you're out on the field trying to put points on the board. It's fun. It's exciting. Um, there was a lot of hard parts to building the business. Uh, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily hard to start the business. Okay. Um, but it was hard to keep your motivation through some of the, you know, more turbulent times, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and those would be, you know, like you'd have a situation where, you know, early on in the company, um, I, I got a great, what was to me, like the type of job that you're kind of like laughing about. You're like, oh my God, this is going to be the greatest project ever. I'll make so much money. Mm -hmm. Well, this company just decided like they're going to go public. So they're not going to pay anybody. That's nice of them. Right. So they just elected not to pay me. And you'd call and say like, I need to get paid. And they're like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You did a great job. You know, um, and you're like, okay, but can I get paid? And they're like, yeah, we're working on, on it. Right. And you just kept getting the runaround. And it was like, at, to the point where I was making payroll on my personal visa, because this, this was like, at the time it was like a hundred thousand, $120,000. Right. Um, it's a lot for, a it was a ton for a small business, Yeah, a ton. Yeah. Um, the, the great part about that though, was that, uh, I learned the, the value of being super lean uh, because I had no other choice. Mm -hmm. So it ended up when I did get paid, um, which was when I got my head above water and I knew that I w my company wasn't going to go bankrupt. Uh, I was pleading with them and just being nice. Like I'm super nice guy. Like just send me five grand. I got payroll. And they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Great. Have a great day. And then nothing. Right. But then once I had my head above water, I went, okay, fuck you. Pay me. And then I got paid. <laughs> so until I was like willing to like actually, you know, say like, you guys pay me, mm -hmm. they didn't, they didn't do it. Yeah. But as soon as I did that, I got paid. Um, it was my most profitable year in terms of, you know, percentage of, of net profit against revenue. Yeah. Um, and right around that time, I think I read uh, Mike McCallowitz's book, um, Profit First. Mm-hmm. So that really made sense to me. I'm like, oh yeah, the smaller plate thing makes tons of sense because I just had to do that, um, not because I wanted to, right? But if I operate like that, and, uh, you know, voluntarily, mm -hmm. I can sort of recreate this situation that resulted in us having a really great profitable year. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after you know two years that just kind of melded together and COVID and everything like that. What's the, what's, what's the biggest obstacles that you're facing right now? Well, I think the, the biggest obstacle right now coming out of COVID has just been um, supply chain disruption. Okay. Uh, and just as things were starting to sort of look like they may normalize and, you know, Putin had to, had to get aggressive. Um, so who knows where, what that's going to have in terms of spinoff effects. Uh, it's already had some, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing that I didn't really, I wasn't really prepared for out of COVID was this, um, sort of like idea that 
so many people would have just elected to go to Serb and like sort of lose in a sense their drive to work. And it's created this also like super weird situation where you've got people with like literally no valuable experience wanting to be paid like absurd amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Cause I think that it's, it's this wave that we're riding that people are now taking advantage of these companies that are just desperate. Uh, so they're willing to pay, but like, I don't know, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to get people in right now uh, without, you know, giving them some huge amount of money, uh, which I don't think is sustainable. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because eventually people are going to have to normalize it and say like, this is, this is, it's, it's way too crazy. Like we have to knock people down. Um, but yeah, that's been tough. Yeah. 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 Why would a piling company fail? I think there's a bunch of ways you could fail. I mean, what we do is very high risk in a way. Uh, you can't see utilities uh, in the ground if you don't, um, you know, like I think a lot of people for, let's say even residential projects, uh, some of our, like for us, we, we had a situation where we hit a gas line and they had to evacuate like 16 homes. It was on the news. Um, the contractor we were working with, uh, took all of the responsibility, but they had like explosive readings in several houses and all like it to me was this like. Yeah, like we could have maybe done more due diligence and and avoided this issue. We did the minimum amount of due diligence, I would say, mm-hmm. but that scared the shit out of me, mm-hmm. right? Like I would never want to be responsible for uh, the catastrophe that could have occurred. Right. So it became black and white for us, where if you don't have your utility locates, we're not doing the project, Yep. right? And then you'd have people go... So you'd say like, I'll, I'll call, I'll do the, I'll get the call before you dig and then we'll schedule it if you haven't already done that. And then you get a call back saying, no, it's fine. I got someone, they're coming to do it. They trust me that I know where my lines are. Oh, right. And I'm going like, holy smokes. Like, but that's one way to really like end your company in a blink of an eye. Right. Right. And, and to me, that's like that's a scary one because we have hit lines that we did all of our due diligence Mm. and we still hit the line. You know, maybe the guy from hydro didn't get out of his truck that day. Right. Um, He assumed that the line was on the other side or something like, I don't know how it works, but we have hit lines that, you know, and that's scary stuff. No kidding. To me, that's scary. So yeah, that could end it. Um, Another way that it could end it is, uh, you know, construction in general, there's a, there's a lot of sharks in construction and uh, a piling company is, you know, you ruin one pilot, one relationship with a piling company. You've got a bunch of other piling companies that you can still work with potentially. Mm. So I think that there's people that are willing to churn and burn subs. And I think it's like that in quite a, almost any subcontractor. Quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So like financially... Um, you got to be really, you almost have to have your head on a swivel. Like I'm not, I, that's been tough for me because I just naturally trust people. Mm-hmm. And I expect that since I'm, 
you know, an honorable business person that prides himself on doing what he says he's going to do and not wanting someone else's piece of the pie, right? Like I want to earn my piece of the pie. Like mm-hmm. I want to over deliver value as much as possible. Uh, not everyone's in that same, you know, sort of mindset. And in construction, it's crazy because like the way that construction works in Manitoba is so weird. You know, you, if you, if I were to like lean the house on a project that you and I were to like, if we say, okay, we're going to engage in a contract and it's going to be for $200,000 worth of piles and we're building this big, beautiful home. And I lean that home. Um, you're going to say, Stan, what the heck? Like, why are you putting a lien on the property? And I'm going to say, well, because we're doing business together and it's a substantial amount of money here. Obviously, the lien is not going to stop you from doing anything if you honor your side of the of the contract. Yep. But I'm just protecting myself. In yep. Ontario, that's normal. In Manitoba, nobody's like, you get, you get run right. out of town for doing something like that. Right, yeah. So now they're starting to talk. You're starting to see like Winnipeg Construction Association coming up with you know, there's advancements towards, you know, prompt payment legislation mm-hmm. is so needed yeah. because you're strung out as a subcontractor. If you're getting, as soon as you get into commercial industrial, like residential is nicer because the Delta is not so, so far out. Like it's, yeah. you, it's a faster turn, but in industrial and commercial, you're looking at 60 to 90 days before you're getting your money uh, in, in a lot of situations, yeah. lean periods of far, they're, they're gone. Yeah. Right. So it leaves you really exposed as a subcontractor, especially if there's not bonds on the project or something like that, mm-hmm. which there rarely are. Yeah. So yeah, I think that the cash is such a big one. Yeah. Um, and I think that also, you know, if you're not like one of the things that you'll learn really quick when you get into uh, more of a cash flow game, like our business has gotten a lot more um, balanced towards commercial industrial. is just the importance of cash. Like you can be profitable and still go to business. Yep. So that's a, that's something that's become really evident to us is just how important it is to be in a position where that's not going to kill you, that whatever you take on isn't going to, doesn't have the threat of being able to make you extinct. Because if you take on a, like it might sound like a great project, but you have to look at the risk. What if they're unscrupulous? Yep. What if they decide not to pay us? What if it goes sideways, right? Like, how is that going to impact us? And if the risk is, if, if there's serious risk there, like walking away from that, I think is super important. Um, or finding a way to change the terms so that you you reduce that risk. Yeah. Um, so for us, that might be, you know, we're going to need a deposit on this, right? Mm-hmm. In order to like at least cover a material cost or something like that um, so that we're, we're not so far out on the project that we're we're at risk yeah it's funny the the subcontractors that that i talk to and when people are putting out a lot of money and you're like oh can i give you a deposit they're like uh yeah that would be great (laughs) you're like okay yeah let's do that you know it's investing them into the project yeah it's making sure that they don't go out of business because that doesn't help me at all Right. right. Yeah. yeah. See, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing is that you're looking at as like, you know, I want to take care of my team. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when we, when we bring our own employees into the mix, we're thinking like how much you want to take care of that team. Sometimes when you're bringing in an outside company, you're a little bit more cold to that company. And, 
um, and you don't treat them the same way or, or bring treat them like a team or look mm-hmm. at them as a team member. Yep. Um, but I think that the companies that like actually get shit done, they look at that as something that's really important, right? Like we've got, we can't do anything alone. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you need to have, a, you know, team members, whether they're internal or external who you can rely on. And I can tell you right now that, you know, we're going to be way more inclined to, to jump to the pump and, and, you know, help someone out, uh, who we have a really great relationship with and who, who we feel values us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's the best way to be a general contractor. Yep. Not everyone's like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of them we've noticed. Yeah. That was kind yeah. of one of our things too, about, about seeing the, the shitty service. Yeah. Right. Just like you noticed that in, in piling contractors, we noticed that in, how many times do you talk to somebody about we either got screwed doing this yeah we don't hear from them uh we don't know what's going on you know i, yeah. I that's, there's a lot of mistrust out there like on it's all incredible ends, right it's incredible yeah and 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 unfortunately it's both sides yeah right and and there's bad apples and bad actors on every side um i think that's one of the things that that i really liked about you we first talked on the phone um and you explained helical piles to me and why we should consider it for um big luxury homes okay and um you know i had a lot of questions for you guys and the ones that we couldn't answer right off the top of our heads you got back to me about um one thing i really like about you guys is you're pushing innovation um you're going you're going or you went at it uh, uh, what I like to see, or or I would say a good way. Um, it was really hard to get the city to want to do anything different, right? So it's not even yeah. just the construction industry, it's the cities and the permits and everything like that. So you almost have to hold their hands to walk them through the entire process. You're talking to people that you know aren't engineers, right. they aren't anything to do with this, and you have to explain why this is a, a good idea. And really it's more of a, a liability talk. Um, what do you wish most people, so maybe even general public would know about piling when they get into it or, or even yeah. contractors, you, you guys deal with a lot of right. GCs, a lot of companies. What are you trying to get out there about piling and helical piles that most people don't know? Uh, well, I mean, really like it's it's about educating the market about where helical piles um have a have a great application and where they don't the where they don't is equally as as important as where they do uh so one of the i guess the secrets to our success uh is that we will say no or we'll suggest like this isn't a good project for helical piles yeah um and the reason being is that uh, at the end of the day, we've got a rule. Whatever you would do for your mom is what you do for your customer. Yeah. And and one of our core values is you do the right thing, even if it hurts. So the right thing sometimes is just to not do the project. Um, the best example I'd have is that of that is, you know, back when I was probably about a million dollars in revenue. Uh, there was a, a conversation I had with an with an architect that was planning a project in a First Nation 
in the interlake. That's all they could tell me. Well, the interlake's the largest like rural <laughs> municipality yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Right. But they didn't want to give me any details because they wanted me, me to be able to compete on the opportunity. And if they gave me too many details, I'd be considered a consultant prior who had, you know, some unfair advantage. Okay. So they're like in the interlake, can you do it? And I'm like, <laughs> generally speaking, yes. Right. But there are situations where you couldn't. And so that was, you know, they asked a few questions on what they should add to the spec to make sure that they were getting a quality um, helical pile, like, you know, things like, you know, galvanizing and, you know, torque and, you know, different things like that. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to it. I get the, it goes for bid. They provide this geotech with a recommendation only for helical piles and, like in but it's a customer providing the recommendation the geotech is more just like uh an example of what the soils profile looks like so i get that i'm like it's three feet to to bedrock so uh, a helical pile needs at least four and a half feet of soil in order to laterally support the the pile to carry any vertical load mm -hmm. so and then on top of that you'd have all this mitigation that has to happen as a result of the frost conditions that we have right so it would just wouldn't make sense. And it would be, uh, it's a situation where the pile is going to fail. Okay. Last thing that I want is a million. It ended up being a big project. It was when I did the estimate, it was over a million dollars. So like it's doubling the dream revenue. project, yep. right? I'm yep. the front runner. They already know they would love to do business with me because my reputation for doing what we had done in other communities. Mm-hmm. And then I, so I call the guy and I said, like, this isn't a helical pile project. Like, this just won't work. Mm -hmm. And they were so invested in this idea of having the benefits of helical piles that, you know, they were kind of pushing against me. And I'm going, no, like, it's just like, it's like a black or white thing. Like, it just doesn't, there's a minimum in the engineering manual that says, you know, this. And, and none of that's like in the engineering manual, not in manufacturer specifications but okay. in the engineering manual and uh he, he so then he he calls me back and says well these guys say they can do it with a really big helix uh they can do it all if if they use a really big one and i'm going it makes zero sense like there's <laughs> it is not at all the case yeah, the math doesn't it's work just gonna be a huge failure yep. and like i i really had to like i had to like fight the person to not put it on helical because i knew that if it went on helical then it was going to be a failure which isn't fair to the people who desperately need housing mm -hmm. right now they're just going to have houses that think that, that are mess. problematic yeah but it's and it's also a huge black eye for helical piles yeah so like the biggest why i say the biggest thing is this education is we need to teach engineers what to look for and what to ask for so that only reputable helical pile contractors can probably put it all together. Hmm. Meaning like what you are going to want is you're going to want like at a minimum, uh, if the project is of any significance, like something more than a deck, let's say, uh, you're going to want that helical pile company to provide a closeout letter from a pile engineer who's going to look at the installation report and then certify that the piles as installed would satisfy the design criteria that's there, right? Yep. And someone who can't provide a report that would instill that level of confidence to an engineer that they'd be willing to put their stamp on a report um, wouldn't be able to produce that and therefore would be weeded out of the mix. 
So there are a lot of the sort of fly by nights. They they stick they've now kind of stuck to the deck thing. So that's one good thing that the Winnip- city of Winnipeg's definitely done is they've made all these hurdles. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we, we're now finally at the point where I think we're a well-oiled hurdle uh jumping machine. Yep. Um, and we've gotten at least some consensus from the city that these are going to be the guidelines moving forward and they're not going to change the rules continuously. So we, I look forward to the future. That was like in the fall of 2020 that we kind of got to that point. Yeah. So you may or may not have seen this yet or experienced it, but there's, it's going to be a much smoother process for anybody who's got the full stack of engineering that's necessary in order to do it. Yeah. And it is the right way to do it. And it's actually how anyone should build a house of significance in Winnipeg. It's crazy that you don't have to have a geotech to build a $800,000 house in Sage Creek. Mm-hmm. That place is a, sl- it's a swamp. It's an old swamp. I have a house a in Sage though. Creek. Yeah. Unfortunately, I it's a newer house, but it was a show home. I didn't have the chance to determine what was going into it. Otherwise I would have insisted on helical knowing what I know Mm -hmm. because we've chopped out a whole bunch of piles in Sage Creek doing underpinning of already new houses because the soils are so bad in some situations, not all in Sage Creek, but in many where in a sense, these floating piles are actually weighing down the house, right? So you have to like underpin the house to refusal and then sever the connection between the house and the pile so that they're no longer weighing them down. Let them sink. And my house moves like, like, I mean, yeah. When you build a house on helical piles, you're not adjusting your door on a seasonal basis. Right. You can have a front door. You're doing that on, I'm doing it on my concrete pile house. Right. Um, So knowing what I know now, I would love to have a geo on every house Mm -hmm. because like, if you're going to spend 800 grand or, I mean, I don't know where the start somewhere should be half a million dollars, right? (laughs) Like wherever it is, the geo is only a couple of grand and it gives you so much data so that whatever you do is actually protected. Yeah. To me, it's the cheapest insurance on, on a house build that you could have. Right. But when the city said, okay, for us to actually comply with limit state design, which is the way they're supposed to do, do uh, builds now by code, limit state design in my understanding anyways, just boils down to engineer everything to the weakest link. Well, foundation weakest link, it's never a pile failure. Like you're not crushing a concrete pile in the ground like a Bud Light can. Mm -hmm. You're failing the soil. It's a soil's failure, right? And even with helical piles, the same thing. It's always like, you know, the helical piles, you know, helix isn't folding up like a taco. Um, It's a soil failure. Um, So it's always like, it always boils down to geotechnical data. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I would say that that's the biggest oversight in Winnipeg um, that I that I see and that people should know about piles mm-hmm. is if it's of any significance in your life, get some geodata and and then don't complain if it means that you have to go from like a, a friction pile that could be $500 to let's say a helical pile that could be $1,000. Because that investment is so much less money than the investment you have to do after the fact to fix the issues. Yeah. How much do you like a sinking house or moving house? Well, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the problem is windows, doors. I don't know. Like everyone in Winnipeg knows a dozen people who have had major issues with their foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, our soil's insane here. And some of those new, like all the, all the really great lots, uh, like, I don't know, like Sage Creek, my buddy, 
I remember he borrowed his uncle's truck and we had to like dig him out because he was down to the floorboards, right? Like it was just a swamp. Yeah. Like people go mudding in farmer's fields, like in Sage Creek. Yeah. You know, and that's where now you've got hundreds of houses being built and they've got a couple of geotechs in the area and they apply that to every house in the area. Right. Yeah. But no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. That's like the saying that we used to have in, in recruiting, right? IBM is is not the right IT company for Emmett Leo, most likely. Mm-hmm. But if you're on a board of directors and you determine to go with IBM, which is what, you know, like you don't have to defend that, right? And no one has to defend concrete piles in Winnipeg mm-hmm. for some reason, even though they don't get any real good data to to determine the performance of that pile. It's such a such an economy pile. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing like no they're not testing the soil that's coming up in the spoils to make sure that it actually is as good as they're assuming it to be. Mm-hmm. And when it fills up full of water, they're like, oh, you know, concrete weighs more than water. I'll just displace it to the top, right? <laughs> you know, like, well, we do it this way because <laughs> 50 years ago when the horses used to shit on the floor. Right. Yeah. We used, yeah. 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 It's that the exact same thing. Yeah. That famous story about the ham, right? Like, why do you cut the ends off the ham, right? Like, well, I only did it once, you know, yeah. but the casserole dish was too small. Right? That's right. Yeah. But, you know, 50 years later, everyone cuts the ends off the ham. I know. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Um, I'm sure we could nerd out on more uh, data, but I I want to make sure that where I'm your your time is uh, well taken care of here. Um, another thing that I really was interested about was um, there's a few places that I've read about mentors in your life. Um, so take me through that. Like, what did that start? I know you know, you're part of multiple organizations. Are there mentors outside of them? Um, is, is what's, what's your definition of a mentor versus a coach? Oh yeah. You know, good question. How, how do they, how do they play and fit into your life? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a mentor who I have like sort of a, an ongoing formal relationship with named Doug Loheed. Okay. Uh, he's an EO member. He's been an EO for a number of years. Um, and, and that mentor relationship is, I would say both mentor as well as coach. So I think that, you know, coach, you could be a real, you could help people without even knowing much of anything about what it is that they're doing by just asking great questions, listening, asking some more questions, maybe, you know, saying, tell me more about that or, you know, like whatever it might be. I mean, one of the the greatest tools we have in our company is uh, like my general manager, we run EOS. So she's an integrator. Mm-hmm. She can't tell Gary how to sell piles. She can't tell Paul how to run an ops department for a piling company. None of this, right? We have a, we have a, a, a scorecard essentially that has the five core competencies that are required for each role broken down into five things that would tell you whether or not, you know, each of these core competencies is being met. She goes through one of those every week. And it's basically on a scale of one to three, where would you put yourself on this one? If it's a two or a one, it's like, okay, why would you say that? You know, and then would you want to improve that? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's like, no, it's just like a temporary thing. It'll fix itself. It's not worth fixing. Um, But then they say, okay, yeah, I do want to improve that. I could do this to improve it. 
And then she'll go, okay, I can hold you accountable to that next meeting. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So it's pure coaching. She's helping them. They own their department. They can actually like feel like they have responsibility for that department because like she's not telling them what to do. They already know what to do. Like we've hired them because they're good at what they do. Right. It's just reflection. Um, And I think that's coaching mentors, mentors, I think uh, maybe bring uh, a level of wisdom to the table uh, that maybe they can, they can help you with maybe like direct advice uh, from time to time when you need it. Uh, but experience share, uh, that's really relevant is, is another way that I think mentors are helpful. And what I, I think a really good mentor is, is they're also uh, a sponsor. I would say Doug, one of the most valuable things Doug's Doug does, uh, he's a coach. He holds me accountable. Um, he does provide great sage wisdom, but the number one thing that he does is he's, he believes in me and he sponsors me. So he's opened a lot of doors to help me as well. And he's connected me with people that he's connected with. Um, and that I would have to probably be a little bit more of a, a veteran uh, entrepreneur and, and achieve certain levels of success to have access to the same people that Doug has access to. Mm-hmm. So he's opened a lot of those doors for me, which has made a huge difference. Did that happen because of EO? Or was it pre? Yeah, it happened because of EO, but EO, the mentorship program in EO is rated the second highest value program in all of EO. When I started in EO in 2015, I said, I want to be in the mentor program. I heard it's the second most value. And and the administrator is like, yeah, we don't have a mentor program. But it a few years later, somebody did bring it on. They set it up of the relationships that were created myself and one other person uh, had a pairing with a mentor that actually panned out. I really? think I'm the only one that meets on a, on a monthly basis all these years later, still. Unreal. Part of that is that I think I, 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 I was invested in the relationship and trying to get the most value from it too. Mm-hmm. So I carried my own bags, you know, and Doug carried his bags as a mentor as well. Yep. So that made it possible for us to have this great relationship. Um, but mentors, like, I don't know, I, I'm a really avid reader. I see, I see sort of, you know, authors and, and inspiring people as mentors. I can learn a lot from, yep. um, like from their example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love, you know, sort of some of the Napoleon Hill stuff where he's talking about these, you know, fictitious boards of directors. And, you know, I, I actually do crazy stuff like that where I will close my eyes on a matter and I will imagine someone who I think might be able to help me out of this jam and I'll try to channel their, you know, wisdom or whatever personality trait that they, you know, hung their success on or something and, yeah. and try to like think like, well, how would Andrew Carnegie, you know, get out of this mess or, you know, Henry, how would Henry Ford approach this or whatever it might be, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, I will do really weird, crazy stuff like that. That's, yeah. uh, yeah, I'm, so I'm, I'm weird that way. So, you know, uh, and then peer mentors and I would say in EO is like about peer, it's a peer mentor organization, uh, where I, you know, I'm trying to, uh, offer as much value to someone as I possibly can. And pretty much everybody in that organization reciprocates that same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's okay. always somebody who I can generally contact in EO. And, and the cool thing is like now with 
COVID, they've created a lot more of these virtual connections that have actually connected us as members worldwide. Uh, so like I've been like reaching out to people. I just reached out to somebody in Austin, Texas, who has a mini home company because our mini home product through the trust thing, like I, I only built a mini home because it was the cheapest thing to build as a proof of concept. Yeah. The demand for mini homes is insane. It is. Yeah, Yeah. Like it's, it's massive. So, um, so yeah, I'm, you know, I'm reaching out to these other EO members, uh, and saying, you know, what can you tell me that will, you know, help me avoid pitfalls and, and maybe, you know, fast track some of the success. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so being like, I'm definitely not afraid to pick up the phone and ask, like I, I even, I was exploring the idea of, uh, creating a helical pile franchise at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, Brian Scudamore is, uh, an EO member. And so 1-800 got junk and, you know, wow, one day painting and all, you know, he's billions of dollars in brands. Mm-hmm. Um, I reached out and yeah, I mean, he even, he said, yeah, absolutely uh, connect with you. And, and so, you know, this was like just a one conversation kind of thing, but yeah. it was instrumental. It was really like, he was very, uh, he was very kind to share his time. Yeah. Um, I know it's valuable for, for people like that It's valuable for anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, what he had to, what he had to share with me actually helped me change directions and pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I wasn't quite ready for a franchise, like based on, on how those things actually work. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting how uh, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone either and ask for help. What's funny is that it's very geographical at times. Okay. Right. If you're asking for help from someone that's in the same location as you Mm -hmm. and you're a direct competitor, it takes a very special person (laughs) to be willing to pick up that phone and and have a conversation with you. Um, But the, you know, the reach of EO is huge. Right? It is. And the amount of members yeah. that, that, especially if you're going virtual, that's phenomenal. Um, which which kind of ties into like, you're in Winnipeg, you're maybe, maybe not tied to Winnipeg as far as if you have to be here or not, but what, did it, what is it about Winnipeg that, that keeps you here? <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to want to stay here after this past winter but legitimately (laughs) almost the worst i've ever been part of yeah that was something else uh i mean what it does is it motivates you to be able to uh you know create a level of of lifestyle that would support having uh a vacation property i guess Mm. Uh, (laughs) i travel a lot (laughs) i'm not gonna lie yeah I'm, i'm like thinking like how do i diversify geographically right now and and have other options so that I can just like get some respite. Um, but I think the thing about Winnipeg is it's a really great size. Yeah. So we have sort of everything that these major centers might have. Um, but there's also like almost no degree of separation. Uh, and I think overall you also have a really uh, sort of like chill people as well like when we like when we lived in Ontario my dad would commute an hour and a half to two hours one way and an hour and a half to two hours the other way so like the quality of life that we had was awful I remember and we both my brother and I were both on these like you know traveling hockey teams right so you'd get you'd, you'd go from school to after school care then your parents would pick you up like rush home 
maybe you had something to eat there or it was like drive through something or other. But like, I can remember like we're, my brother and I are jumping in the car. My mom's, you got this, you got that. You double checked your bags, you got your shin pad, you got the, you know, like, and she's just like, okay, here's, she's like rifling stuff into the back seat for us to eat. Right. And, she, and we're running off to go in all these directions to go play hockey. She went right through the garage door. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, that is such a rat race, you know? So when we moved here, I really felt like, oh, wow. Like I, we actually like got so much more family time. It was such a higher quality of, of life overall, mm-hmm. as opposed to this rat race, I guess that was in Ontario. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you don't stay here for the weather necessarily, but you nope. stay for other reasons. Uh, and th- those are the reasons I love Winnipeg. Uh, owning a Helco Pile company, I've been told by many engineers who work nationally that Winnipeg is a special kind of place. Uh, you know, I've had people say that they've actually like intentionally not renewed their Manitoba stamps just so they're not tempted to come back here and do work. Right. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's been a challenge, but I think, I think we've kind of got on the same page with the city now. So I'm hoping that's not such a, such a contentious situation. The biggest issue was just the continuously changing landscape, but yeah, the people here are fantastic. Quality of life is fairly good. Yep. As long as you're resilient to the weather. That is the one that is the, and the potholes. You, oh, <laughs> this, year, this time of year is always great for that. I don't know how anyone drives a car. <laughs> yeah, no, like you can't actually get yeah. down our back lane in a car. It's crazy. Yeah, I actually on my way here, I got a, a call from a friend who's an EO member who thought I might be in in a forum with uh Brian Lowe's who owns uh the Mercedes, Mercedes dealership. Yeah. yeah, but like the reason she's trying to get a hold of Brian because she's trying to figure out how to take care of her tire because CAA is there because she hit a pothole and like busted out brutal sidewall right brutal <laughs> how are you doing for time I'm good yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm not pressed okay yeah. beautiful um do you have um do you have a daily routine that you follow is I'm, that something that's important to you no I'm like a I'm one of those sort of crazy guys so you know when you I'm very much a visionary, uh, but I have way more routine in my life than I've ever had. Okay. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how I got, I, I had like no routine. And in the fall, we ended up on, we were on a retreat. We did, uh, one of the things that we did on retreat is we went to Bowen Island, met with a guy named Steve Rio. And Steve's like, okay, we're going to learn about how like the brain works in the morning. Then we're going to do, you know, this, and then we're going to do the breath work in the afternoon, which is, can be really interesting and high energy and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, had you ever done anything like that before? No. Okay. And I thought that we were going to learn how to do some breathing technique that would get us out of like the afternoon lull or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, after lunch while you're digesting and it would pick up your energy at work or something. Yep. Um, I, I ended up having like the craziest experience of my life and, you know, people are now starting to talk about the effects of like mushrooms and hallucinogens and different things like that, that bring them to this height that like changes their life. Like people with PTSD or, you know, like seeing a, a fraction of the impacts of PTSD that they were seeing before they went to this place kind of thing. We didn't end up doing the hallucinogens. 
but through the breath work, I went there. The other people there didn't quite get there. Crazy. But I did. And, I, and it was the craziest thing in, like I've ever experienced in my life. And when I came back, I was like, I, I created a Monday, Wednesday, Friday routine. And I joined the, I joined Orange Theory. I was always like identified as this. I'm the, I'm a sports guy. I'm not a gym guy. Right. Okay. And it, I always like, there's always this voice in me that said, you should go to the gym. Like, it's like, you're not actually getting a proper workout, just going to squash or just playing hockey or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just without any friction or hesitation, although I, I couldn't bring myself to do it for 20 years, I just joined. And then I, you know, and I know that I should do planning as part of my discipline. And so I, one of my EO uh, forum members has this really cool weekly planning sheet that he has where he goes through all of his goals and then he's writing like what he can do that week to like achieve his like, you know, sort of quarterly goal. Like, mm-hmm. so he's got his overall like life goals and then like that's broken down to like a yearly goal quarterly and then like weekly. Mm-hmm. And then he designs his life around that. And he's even got like listed on there as key uh, reports. It's like, what did they do great last week that I should mention? Or, you know, what and what kind of support do they need this week? And what should I delegate? What should I take on? Yep. And he does this great planning exercise. So I, I adopted that and I started doing that. So I do that on Mondays and then I review it on Wednesdays and Fridays. And I do my Orange Theory Monday, Wednesday, Friday at like 9.30 in the morning. Yeah. So what it's done is by having the Orange Theory at this 9.30, it's this really awkward time. It doesn't make sense for me to go into the office and start doing other stuff. It makes sense for me to drop the kids off at school, go back home, do my planning, and then head to Orange Theory. And after Orange Theory, I start my day. Yeah. So yeah, that's my little bit of discipline. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, mentally, and and going back as far as you want, did you always know that that you were going to be, and, and I'll, I'll say this word completely subjectively, take it as you will, but successful in your life, whether it was in business, whether it was sports, whether it was, you know, what, what was... Did you have an did you have a belief that you were going to be successful? Sorry guys, Dan here. Unfortunately, technology doesn't always work the way we want it to and you won't have great audio from here to the end. It's not that much longer though. You can still listen, but if you decide you can't stand it, make sure to check out all the amazing things that Stan and his team at Versapile are doing, as well as the innovative work that he is doing with a partner at Evolving Innovations, building energy efficient homes. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I don't know. I I think that I always had a desire. I don't know that I was always convinced that I would be successful. Like I felt like I had the capability to be successful, but that, you know, whether or not I was, you know, deserving of success was a different story or that if I, you know, you always have this inner critic who's like, you're going to screw it up or, you know, something's going to happen, you're going to lose it all, whatever it might be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I never, and I still don't really see myself as necessarily successful, Uh, but I do really love the life that I'm living. So I guess in that situation, I would be successful. Mm -hmm. 
I'm grateful for every day. I'm living a life of gratitude and, and I'm present. Uh, I would, I don't know, like, I think I've gotten, I've convinced, I'm convinced now that like success is not necessarily monetary. I, I thought I was really motivated by money. Um, I've become way less motivated by it. I, uh, to me now, like money kind of comes and goes, but I always like, so if you backtrack to where I, where I was previously, like you'd ask me about my origin story, I left things out, right? So, you know, I was born in Calgary. My mom and dad were together. They divorced when we moved to Regina. My dad, uh, I, I, that's where we kind of lost touch with him. When I moved to Emory, my mom had remarried to somebody. Yeah. So we went there, lost touch with my biological dad. Uh, he wasn't around for a long time, right? And he was a big screw up with business. Like his dad, very successful. Him, huge screw up, okay. right? So like in the back of your head, you also have this like, you know, for stupid reasons, you, you're like, well, you know, that was my dad. Like how I can't be successful with a dad like that. Right. Yeah. Like dumb stuff like that. But then you realize like, well, he's also a great example of like, what not to do. True. Right. And then I did have a dad who provided great example as well. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I've always had this sort of screwed up thing. I think it was like a dad issue, um, which has taken me a while to resolve. And actually, like through EO, I had like enough sort of these uh, presentations about uh, the impacts uh, that were deep um, as a result of that situation. Mm -hmm. And actually connected with my biological dad not long ago. And it was more or less to just be able to like satisfy myself, I guess, and my curiosity mm -hmm. and, to, and to let go of it. So as to just say, like, I had to say to him, like, I forgive you for essentially abandoning me, or at least that's how I felt, right? Yep. Now, in hindsight, you know, he had he had a situation where he felt he was in this catch-22 and couldn't, couldn't become a part of our, or couldn't be a part of our life, right? Yeah. So it was, like, really interesting, but, yeah, that, I, I never was convinced that I would actually be successful. Mm. Um, but, and I, you know... I think that as long as you're enjoying your life and doing, you're, you're eager to get out of bed in the morning. I think that's, I think that's what it's all about. There's, I had a sub dealer named Claude Jodwin in Fort Francis yeah. and he's, I have it on my wall. It's the most sage thing I think I've ever heard, but I was having dinner with Claude and I laughing our asses off and I just, I love hanging out with the guy and I just said, Claude, I freaking love hanging out with you. Right. And he goes, well, my motto is he who has the most fun wins. And uh, that's super, like, that's amazing, right? And, and it's always sat with me mm -hmm. and it's never left me. And it's always something that I think, like, I think that's actually the answer. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, it's so simple, but it's so profound. Right. Yeah. And he might have actually, like, nailed the purpose. It's interesting. The goal. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, if, you were, if, if you ask people, like, what do you want in life? which is a very tough question if you've never thought about it for a lot of people, right? They, they go straight to like, I want to be happy. Right. Right. Um, which, 
you know, if you reverse engineer everything, it's more about moving towards something that you've already, that you've determined that you want to do. And the closer you get to it, the happier we actually metrically are yeah. in, in, in these studies. Um, I had somebody tell me um, that we're all searching for peace. Mm. So whether that's obtained through, you know, money, mentally, you know, the happiness in your family, in your business, in your body, all of that stuff. And I kept going, and that really stuck with me. Like I kept going back to like peace and, and really it was, it's it still to this day, you know, has really stuck with me as far as, you know, what's, you know, can money, can money get us peace? Well, it can, it can be a part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Right. And as yeah. you said, the, the more, you know, money covers certain things, there's, there's, there's the basics that we need to. And then after a while, it just stops being as important. That's right. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, closing up here. What's one of the things I really like about the podcast is it gets people kind of that, that are either in your situation or where you were at one point in your life, what is the, what, what is the advice that has kind of always come back to you as far as if I was telling myself other than don't do it when, when <laughs> to start a business, yeah. what advice would you give to someone that is, you know, in your position that, that doesn't like being told what to do is looking at either companies or opportunities and knows that there's something out there and it's not being, uh, uh, an employee, um, right. what's the advice that you give them? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, the, probably the same advice I give like my nieces and nephews. Uh, a lot of times they're being like the advice they get is school, 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 right? And I'm saying hard work, grind it, like learn to grind, be gritty, right? That's the, that's, that's what it takes right? It takes grit and it takes tenacity and it takes the ability to get knocked down and get back up again. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's the, the missing link these days. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, you, you are in business, so you have, you know, employees or people that you lead. Um, rare are the people that have that level of, of work ethic. Um, you know, that farms, farm boy, farm girl mentality, right, is uh, so hard to come by nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's, if you have just that, you could probably make it work. You know, it'll just be a matter of time. I, I, I couldn't actually agree more, as my license plate is DTFW, do the fucking work. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's I awesome. I think so many people say they want shit. They want yeah. stuff in their lives, whether it's a better marriage or be healthy or they want more money or they want connection with something higher or more internal certainty. Right. But they're not willing to do the fucking work to get it. Yeah. And that to me is just like, that's, that's the key, right? Got it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, like an entrepreneur isn't working for an hourly wage, right? So, like this nine to five idea is out the window. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I think what you also have to do is you have to find something that engages you. Yeah. Like I started a, a vending machine company. I had no motivation other than monetary motivation for it. Mm -hmm. And it lasted for like two months. Yeah. Thing was profitable and it made money, but I didn't want to go around, you know, changing out candy and taking money and stuff like mm -hmm. that. It was just like, I didn't see how it was in all, at all changing the world or yep. doing something that I felt was important work. Yep. Uh, so I think it's like, you need to get, you need to probably also align yourself with something, some type of mission or purpose that gets you out of bed every morning. Yep. Um, for me right now, like I am excited to do what I'm doing and I'm excited for the impact and for for what it actually means, uh, the work that we're pursuing, the companies that we're building. Yeah. So, to me, it's important stuff. That's, that's so awesome. It's one of the things that uh, attracted me to working with you, to getting to know you. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, share your story. I think there's so many nuggets in there that are just like, if people, just listen and apply half of what you said, a quarter of what you said, <laughs> it would help so many people um, in their own lives. So um, I, I know that there's actually way more uh, as far as even, you know, the, the numbers and, and the nerdy part of, of piles that I'd love to get into <laughs> at a different time um, that we are getting into on some, on, on, some of the jobs. Um, but you know, I have to commend you on your approach that you've taken, um, on who you are, um, the amount that you put into your, your company and growing your company and, you know, applying stuff like EOS, um, you know, that gives your employees confidence, um, you know, dealing with your employees, they're happy, they like what they're doing, and that really is a, a sign of good leadership. So um, I really commend you on it, and, and I really appreciate you being on here. Well, I appreciate you inviting me, Daniel. This has been uh, a lot of fun, and um, I'm happy you say that. I mean, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't see it necessarily that way. I feel like this guy who's just kind of stumbling through, through life, sharing what he's, uh, what, what's resonated with him or what the tough lessons that he's learned or the easy stuff that seems to have panned out. And oftentimes it's the stories that don't work out right, that you learn the most from, but yeah, yeah I appreciate you having me. It's fun talking. You can come back anytime, <laughs> anytime. We'll do a round two. All right. Okay, thanks so much.